She wanted more from our marriage and grew frustrated enough to finally confront me. She had finally come to a place where she would not accept my excuses, delays, or avoidant behavior. She had nothing else to lose. Late one evening, as I was sitting on our bed reading, she entered the room and calmly informed me I'd be happy single rather than married to you. I'm getting off this roller coaster. I love you, but refuse to live this way anymore. I have waited. I have tried talking you. You are not listening. I cannot change you, that is up to you, but I am getting on with my life. She was resolute. Oh yes, by the way, the church you pastor, I quit. Your leadership is not worth following. And for a brief moment, I understood why people murder those they love. She had exposed my nakedness. A part of me wanted to strangle her. Mostly, I felt deeply ashamed. It was almost too much for my weak ego to bear. Nonetheless, this was probably the most loving thing that she has done for me in our entire marriage. While she could not articulate it yet at that point, she realized something vital. Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Now here's the good news, sir. Uh, this was not a conversation between Carissa and I, so I can say that openly. <laughs> um, so you can breathe with me a sigh of semi-relief if you were worried in that manner. Uh, this was, however, one of the deepest pain points in the life and ministry of Pete Scazzaro. He's a pastor out of Queens, New York, and he had hit rock bottom because of his emotional dysfunctions within his own home. And what Pete really began to realize after decades of following Jesus, that he really did love Jesus, that he loved vocational ministry, honestly, a bit too much. Um, he loved Bible studies and worship. He loved growing relationships with other Christians. He had seen God do some amazing things in and through his ministry. And yet at the deepest levels of his heart and soul, they had been completely untouched by the Spirit of God. He recognized he was an emotional infant and that it was ruining other people's lives, especially those he supposedly loved the most, his wife and his four daughters. And it's really the closing statement of the passage I just read uh, from his book that helps to propel this series. He said again, it is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And we really want to wrestle with this statement as we kick off this series, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, because we're trying to open ourselves to that journey. How does Jesus of Nazareth, how does the spirit of Jesus, who Jesus said that he pours out into the lives of those who call him Lord and Savior, how does the spirit of God want to transform the whole person, including our emotions? And so what we're doing this Sunday is we're kicking off the six-week series, and we really want to unpack today the why, the why of this series, and to show you a roadmap of where we're headed. So that's what we're doing this morning. If you've got a Bible, hopefully you've got it open by now, grab it. Uh, we're going to be unpacking four whys for this series. Like, why is this so important? And uh, once we unpack those four whys, I'll even give us a few next steps, uh, what we call some Kairos considerations. So why are we engaging this series? Open up to Mark chapter 12, if you've got that Bible in front of you. I know we did nine months in the Gospel of Mark, but here we are again. Uh, so Mark chapter 12, verse 29, because the first reason and the biggest why probably for this series is we really want to learn how to live out the first and second greatest commandments. Jesus said it this way. In that story, a religious leader asked Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And here's what he said. Chapter 12, verse 29. The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the Shema. It's the self-defining statement of Israelite amidst all the uh, rampant other gods in the cultures of the Roman Empire and all around them. Israel was defined by the one true God. Then Jesus says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now we unpacked this a few weeks back, so we don't need to go super deep here. We just need to kind of hit on on what's obvious. He's asked for one commandment and Jesus gives two. He does distinguish that yes, loving God with our whole being is the essence of what it means to follow God. And it is the most important to have this overflowing love back to God. And yet, on his own accord, says, guess what? There's a second commandment that that is just behind it or or deeply connected to it, and it's to love our neighbor as ourself. And he says, there is no commandment greater than these. So Jesus links the vertical with the horizontal of loving our neighbor as ourself. We want to grow an emotional health because here's the bottom line. We often want to do the right thing and yet utterly fail to do so. Uh, crucial to our disciple-making culture at, at Serve is that we believe Jesus wants us to learn how to listen and obey him. Uh, Jesus even closed out his longest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, basically saying that he paints a picture of a person who builds a house on the rock and the wind comes and the tornadoes sort of deal. And guess what? The, the house stands because they were people who listened to his words and do them. And then he says, uh, but those who listen to my words but don't do them are like a person building their house on sand. And so when that storm comes, everything comes crashing down. And so we know Jesus wants us to listen and obey. The basic heart posture of an apprentice of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, is someone who listens to his voice and then does it. Right? So we have a listen and obey culture. But here's the thing. I often know exactly what the Lord wants. Some of his teachings are super clear, like do not lie or love your spouse or, or give uh, to the poor and the most vulnerable. Right? So we can honest, you know, very oftentimes know exactly what Jesus wants for us. Then we can even have honest desires to do what Jesus wants us to do, right? So we know the command. We know what we're supposed to do. And then guess what? There's this messy thing called life. More narrowly stated, I am often emotionally hooked or triggered in such a way that even though I know what Jesus wants, even though I have a desire to do what Jesus wants, uh, I simply fail completely. Uh, Over the past few weeks in the Greer household, we've been moving our upstairs office uh, down uh, to the basement because we're going to put Belle up in the upstairs office. It's a little bit safer, and we figured out the temperature issues we were having inside the house, and so we're pretty excited about that. It's going to be great. So over the last couple weeks, we've been rocking a move within the house. And uh, as many of you know, we have three young children, and so we're trying to do the move mostly either in the evenings or during their naps or times where we're not totally uh, missing time with them. And so obviously that's put a little bit of strain on just some late nights, right? And so a couple weeks ago, we had one of those late nights. And even though we had decided beforehand, oh yeah, we're going to do this when they go down, I was just exhausted. And so when Krista says, hey, all right, let's do this. I'm telling you, I became whiny and annoying and frustrated and I made it really challenging. Like I, I did not interact well with Krista in those moments. And, and so I knew the way I wanted to serve around my household. I knew the way I wanted to support Carissa and I really failed to do this and made the experience a bit sour. Those are the sorts of things we're trying to unpack the realities of our messy lives. First John four even says it this way. We love because he first loved us. 
Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love the brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. The journey of emotionally healthy discipleship is, is one where we say, you know, we can't just say, oh, I love God and I'm so connected to with him. And yet, boy, I treat my spouse, my kids, my neighbors, my coworkers, uh, my spiritual family poorly. Like that gap is what Jesus is saying, no, that, that's not the life and apprentice of Jesus. And so the first framework for our series is motivated out of a love from our neighbor, right? It really is that horizontal push. Uh, what I want to make sure, you know, we're not motivated by one of the cultural default narratives, which is be the best you, right? Like we're actually not motivated uh, by kind of the narcissistic self-exploration as an end in itself. Uh, Christian theology has long actually made space for examining oneself. It's actually that we examine ourselves so that we can know God. And by knowing God, we can know ourselves more fully. So there should be this deep inward journey in the life of an apprentice of Jesus, but it is not out of the motivation of, I want to be the best me or me doing me or you doing you, right? Like that is not the motivation for this series. Instead, it is out of emotional health for the sake of loving others. It's motivated out of the sake for being a more loving spouse or parent, uh, for being a great coworker, for the dozens upon dozens of commands along these lines. Uh, and that's what we believe the primary reason to engage emotionally healthy discipleship is the desire to be drenched in love for others. All right? Our big number two. Like, why are, the, why are we doing this? Because the scriptures point us to a God who displays a beautiful array of emotion. I could draw from thousands, I mean, literally thousands of verses from the scriptures. Here's a few that came to mind for me this week. That God is full of joy out of Genesis 1. Uh, when you look at the creation account there in Genesis 1 and 2, especially in Genesis 1, after day 1, what does it say? God reflects and says, this is good. And it says that in day two, it is good, it is good, it is good. And on day six, after humans have been created, it is very good. And the wonderful picture we get of God is this joyous, abundant, creative, lavishing God. That it is good and he is joyful. If we fast way forward to John chapter 15, where Jesus is in his last hours, right before he's arrested, and then he's going to go to the cross and die, he gives some extended teaching to his closest friends. And he says this in John 15, verse 9. He says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Imagine that, the eternal Son of God receiving the eternal love of the Father, he loves us in the same way. Verse 10, if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love. This is that listen and obey posture. Just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus' desire is that we would have this fullness of joy, that we would live a joy-filled life. John 17, the words won't be on the screen here, but, but Jesus in his last prayer, it's called this high priestly prayer. Jesus says this, now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. 
right? We get this picture of Jesus, the Father, and the Son in this beautiful, glorious, joy-filled relationship. Later in that passage in verse 20, he begins to pray for people like us in the room. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them, so all believers, may be one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, right? So there's this prayer of deep unity. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those who you have given me to be with me where I am, right? This joyful connectedness, uh, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Like Jesus paints a picture that he wants to have us have such deep relational connectedness that he experienced with the Father, that the Father and the Son would dwell in our hearts and that this, this joy-filled presence would emanate in us and through us. I don't know what your concept of God is, but have you ever considered that God is the most joyous being on the face of the universe? One of the most influential writers uh, for me uh, is named Dallas Willard. He was a guy in Southern California. He was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California. Um, An amazing thinker and brilliant man. He wrote The Divine Conspiracy, among many others, but I'd highly recommend that book. It's about a 500-pager around the Sermon on the Mount, and it is absolutely brilliant. And and a portion of it, uh, he, he shares this story. He says, we should, to begin with, think that God leads a very interesting life and that he's full of joy, right? he's not this this angry God up in the heavens. Undoubtedly, he is the most joyous being in the universe. And he tells this story. While I was teaching in South Africa some time ago, a young man took me out to see the beaches near his home in Port Elizabeth. I resonate. I'm from Southern California. I miss the beaches. He says, I was totally unprepared for the experience. I had seen beaches, or so I thought. But when when we came over the rise where the sea and land opened to us, I stood in stunned silence and then slowly walk towards the waves. Words cannot capture the view that confronted me. I saw space and light and texture and color and power that hardly seemed of this earth. Gradually, there, kept, uh, there crept in my mind the realization that God sees this all the time. He sees it, experiences it, knows it from every possible point of view. Great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash through his being. We pay a lot of money to get a tank with a few tropical fish in it and never tire of looking at their brilliant iridescence and marvelous forms and movements, but God has seas full of them, which he constantly enjoys. This is what what we must think of when theologians and philosophers speak of him as perfect being. This is his life. And then we've read from John 15 where Jesus says that joy can become complete in us. He finishes by saying, So we must understand that God does not love us without liking us (laughs) through through gritted teeth, as Christian love is sometimes thought to do. Rather, out of eternal freshness of his perpetually self renewing being, the Heavenly Father cherishes the earth and each human being on it. I really took some time on joy because this is the joyous presence of the living God. Now, there are many other emotions. We'll go a lot quicker here, but just want to give you a little bit more. So one, we see Jesus filled with compassion. Mark 6 comes to mind in verse 32. Listen how God is filled with compassion. Jesus as the full expression of God in verse 32. He says, so they went away by themselves in a boat in a solitary place. 
But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. Splognizomai is that Greek word. And it means this deep, guttural, bowel-like compassion. Like it hurt Jesus so bad that, that he was compelled to do something. When he landed and saw the crowd, he has compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. On the, hinges of the, or on the heels of the death of his cousin, John the Baptist, Jesus was trying to get his disciples away. And his splognizomai, his compassion was so triggered that he has to spend time and pour out more upon this crowd. We also see Jesus full of righteous anger at times. He was angry. Mark chapter 3, verse 3 through 5. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, they're in a synagogue. He says, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill it? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Jesus was angry that they would warp the Sabbath to say you can't perform miracles on the Sabbath, that's work and that's breaking the Sabbath. He says, no, hold up. It is always good. It is always good to do good on the Sabbath, to save life rather than to kill it. And he was angry and compelled by that anger in love to then heal this man and to say, you guys, religious teachers, have really turned this thing upside down. We see Jesus full of sorrow. We, a couple weeks ago, kind of stayed in this prayer in Gethsemane in the closing hours before he was arrested. Jesus said this in Matthew 26, I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. We see this very authentic prayer, this very deep, intimate, humble moment between Jesus and the Father in prayer. I'm overwhelmed with sorrow. We see Jesus filled with sadness at times. In Luke 13, it says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you, your children together, as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Right? We see this love, and he's just grieved in his heart. He's sad. And, and then if you were a, a young child in the Awana days, I'm sure there, there are many times where you get to memorize a Bible verse, right? So this is the most memora memorizable verse in all of the scriptures, it's Jesus wept. John 10, verse 38. But it's another amazing moment. Jesus, as he approaches Mary on the death of her brother Lazarus, Jesus just weeps. He just weeps with her. And so he allows that sadness uh, to compel him in love. And then finally, grief. In Genesis 6, it says the Lord was sorry or that he regretted that he had made humans on the earth and was grieved in his heart. I cannot imagine what that actually looked or felt like, that God creates humans as the greatest joy and the ultimate point of creation, and yet at some point in creative history was grieved that he had made humankind. And so we see this vast array uh, of emotions in the heartbeat, in the reality of God. And so our third why really flows out of that. It's because we as humans are made in the image of God, that Genesis 1:27 states this very clearly. And as image bearers, we know one aspect of that being is emotions, right? That we are emotional beings, that we are social, 
physical, intellectual, spiritual, and emotional beings. And these things don't actually operate in separated components. It's actually this call to see our lives in a holistic reality with, yes, our emotional reality as one aspect of it, but we are deeply interconnected. We know that when we get out of health physically, that, that it can really hang up our, our emotions or our ability to think well. When our emotions are off, that can cause us into dysfunctions in other places. What we want to see is that as humans made in the image of God, we are whole people and very interconnected in all of our beings. What we want to say about emotional health, one is that emotions are not inherently bad and they are not inherently good either. God created us in his image. So originally they are part of the good creation that God set in motion. And yet they're also fallen uh, because of sin. Emotions can connect us to the heartbeat of God and draw us closer and closer with him. And just as easily our emotions can take us away from the heart of God. What we're trying to advocate for or, or learn how to navigate in this series is what we would call tip of the iceberg spirituality. Right? Well, when we think of a glacier, when we think of an iceberg, we know at the top is only 10 to 15% of the mass of the glacier. And underneath the waters of the surface, guess what? 80 to 90% of that glacier actually exists. And so one of the paradigms of that metaphor for us emotionally is that we're going to keep unpacking in the coming weeks is how do we allow our emotional responses to show us that something is going on deeper underneath the surface. Like how does God want to speak to us when we see ourselves hooked by anxiety or worry or fear or we find ourselves grieving or overwhelmed or really joyful and excited, whatever the, that vast range of emotions, what is God wanting to say to us? What is underneath that core emotion? That's some of where we're trying to explore in this series. What we want to do is learn how to invite God, participate with God, and more deeply understand how to navigate through our emotions rather than stuffing them, rather than running away from them, rather than blaming or pointing fingers or even judging them or, or others or the circumstances. We're wanting to learn how to navigate through them to the other side of them so that we might uh, grow closer to God and again, to love other people well. Our final and fourth kind of why for the series is emotional health for the sake of mission. Again, it's much more beyond just ourselves. Jesus invites, creates this family, adopts us into his family through the life, mission, death, and resurrection of Jesus to join him as spiritual family together. And he does that because he is a God who wants to lavish his love upon all the earth, all people groups, and he has formed a people to join him in that mission. We see that in Acts 1, verse 7 and 8. He said to them, this is in a resurrection appearance. It's actually his last one, according uh, to the gospel writer Luke. He said, it is not for you to his disciples to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, my martyreos, people who will even give their lives to make the good news known. You will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, the surrounding areas, and to the ends of the earth. This is the mission that God has called all followers of Jesus into. 
Verse, uh, then we head over to Matthew 28, very similar. We, we read this all the time. It is just core to the heartbeat of serve. It's called the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all people groups, all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So again, Jesus compels us to be filled with his love and to go and make his love known. He compels us to actually become disciple makers where we learn how to listen to his voice and and, and obey him and then to teach and train and shape and form other people to do the same. We look to the person of Jesus who chose 12 men who he invited into a space of his life that others were not into this deep closeness for three whole years. He was walking alongside them, multiplying his life into them and through them. And these untrained, previously untrained and unlearned people turned the world upside down. This is the calling on all followers of Jesus in their lives. But if we're unhealthy emotionally, we won't be able to do this very well. If we're unhealthy emotionally, we're going to run into what Schizero ran into, which is a hypocritical double life. If we have broken relationships because of our emotional dysfunctions, guess what? It is going to train wreck us. So again, we want to be healthy in this area so that we can engage the Great Commission well. So how are we bringing that to bear right now? I wanna encourage you in in three ways. Here are our Kairos next steps. And if you're familiar with that language, Kairos, it's really what Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark, the first public statement he gave. He said this, he proclaimed this message, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. And Jesus used the word Kairos time there instead of Kronos. Kronos is where we get the word chronology, right? So linear historical time is Kronos time or chronological time. Jesus did not use that word, and he could have. He says it's the Kairos time. And Kairos is, it's an opportune moment. Like God wants to do something. He's breaking in right here and now. And then he says, here's how you respond. You repent and you believe. You trust in the good news of Jesus and what he's doing and what he wants to do in this moment. So here are our Kairos moments, the way I believe that God wants to break into our community at this time. The first is an invitation to know facades. And as I say that, I know this is one thing that is really challenging. It's really challenging on all kinds of fronts because we have to own our stuff. And we actually have to be in both in honesty with ourselves, in authenticity before God. And and ideally, it really doesn't just go there. We actually desperately need other people on that journey as well. And I'm very aware, after living in four years in Perfect Village, uh, that facades are, are very strong. And I'm aware of my own desires to put up facades that everything is good. And this is a series that says, no, no, there's an invitation to say we can own our stuff, that we don't have to be shame-filled, that we don't have to be afraid uh, because we're reminded of of verses and passages like Romans 8 that says nothing can separate us from the love of God, not a single thing. And if that is true, it invites us out of shame and out of facades to own our stuff. But it is an invitation to say, look, if you only want to look at the tip of the the iceberg, you're not going to move forward. We've got to get to that 80 to 85% that is underneath the surface. So there's an invitation for our community in this time to know facades. The second invitation is to do the hard work. And the truth is, most commonly, God will use pain to change us. 
the truth is most of the time we don't want to change unless pain and other external circumstances often force us uh, to re-navigate our lives. And we're saying, you know what, in joy and in humility and in kindness, you don't have to wait for external circumstances. If we actually navigate some of the pain on our own and choose to go to some of those deep places, um, God w- will help us and he'll move us along. And so there's this invitation to do the hard work and to actually press into the pain that God might show you. Again, this is some of this work is done internally on your own. Some of this is going to be done in community, in friendship with others. Um, but I, I want to say, if, if we just listen to stuff on Sundays, like we will not actually take steps forward. And, and so that's on me as well. I, I can go ahead and talk about this stuff, but if I'm unwilling to engage the hard work on my own, like nothing will actually move forward. And so there's a wonderful, joy-filled invitation to do the hard work and, and also a recognition that it is hard. All right. But that's my hope is that as we unroll uh, over the next few weeks, there's going to be homework assignments, right? There's going to be next steps that will only take place, not in the hour of the morning. They'll have to go onward in your own personal lives. And so there's an invitation to engage that. Finally is the invitation to abide. And we talk about this all the time, but there will be a a series of spiritual disciplines and ways that we are trying to open ourselves before God. Because Christian theology and understanding of how transformation works, it is not about our own self-will. Like there's actually a a, a deep strand and understanding that it is the Spirit of God who, who transforms us as we open ourselves to God. So are there always practical steps for us to take? Absolutely, right? We're not, we're not saying there's no responsibility to take our own steps. There are. Uh, but it's an understanding of indirect transformation rather than I can willpower myself to be a different person. We do not believe that that's the invitation of Jesus, nor is it the good news of Jesus. He says that he can transform us. And so we learn to open ourselves to his presence, to his power, to his kindness. And we open ourselves to this God who can actually do the deep work in us. All right. So there's an invitation to abide. Finally, as we move forward, I just want to let you know, here's where we're headed over the next five weeks, all right? Give you a little bit of a roadmap. So this next Sunday, a week from today, we're going to dive into family of origin issues uh, because the family that we grew up in is oftentimes the way we know how to love others. And the family of Jesus always looks uh, both different from our family of origin, right? There may be some parts of a family of origin that is good, that reflects the kingdom of God, and usually there are lots of dysfunctions as well. We are broken people and we'll pass those on. So we're really going to explore deep Uh, what is a family of origin and how do we learn to do life in the family of Jesus that calls us to something different. Uh, After that, we're going to explore three base emotions that are are harder ones to get through. So meaning grief, trauma, and sorrow will be one week. We'll devote a week towards anger. We're going to devote a week towards anxiety. And we're going to close up the series with emotionally healthy disciple making and really kind of point us towards uh, our true and secure identity in Christ. And so that's how we're going to be navigating over the next five weeks. I want to close us uh, with the woman who who stormed out on Pete Scazzaro. Her name is Jerry. And uh, in her own book, The Emotionally Healthy Woman, she says quitting the church was only the first small step towards true freedom in Christ. All right, this moment where she had the audacity to go, look, I'm done with your church. She says the problem, though, I would learn was not ultimately the church. It was not Pete. It was not the congestion of New York City, nor their four children. The hard truth was that the problem was me. She says, monumental things inside of me needed to change. 
emotionally healthy discipleship, and the reality of any good kairos, right? When God is breaking in, it's what God wants to do in us from the inside out. Like it's never that circumstance, that relationship, that thing we love to blame and point fingers at. The Kairos moment is always God wanting to do something in us and with us and through us. And so serve, I really just wanna encourage you. Let's journey together in the grace and truth of the kind, most joyous being that is God in all the universe. And my hope is that we would experience some increasing freedom in Christ, that we'd be willing to do the hard work of pressing into the pain. And I want you to know I'm praying with you and for you and engaging deeply this journey alongside of you over the next six weeks. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Thank you for checking into the Serve Community Church podcast. If you're interested in more information on how to connect with our community, feel led to support us in any way you can or have any further questions, please check us out on social medias like Facebook or Instagram or go to our website at servecc.org. God bless and have a great day.